Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 3 this morning, looking at the matter of baptism. And this is probably one of the first aspects of baptism. There was a ministry of baptism that took place in Judea in the time of Christ that Jesus Christ was a participant in, you might say. And that was really the, the baptism, it started with the baptism of John the Baptist, which was a precursor to the coming Christ and his ministry and uh, ultimately the, the New Testament church ordinance of baptism. And Jesus Christ was a partaker of that baptism. And in so doing, he set an example. But I want to start by reading this account because I think there's a number of things in here that are important to us and affirming our practice. We're starting in chapter 3. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So we see here something very early on. This idea of baptism was not some novel notion that John the Baptist was looking out across society and said, You know, there's a lot of just wickedness around here, and it'd be good to call people to repentance and get them to come back to, to be in the way they ought to be and live in the way they ought to. And maybe if I invented a ritual that's to, to run people through, that, you know, maybe this would be meaningful to them. And so I'm going to come up with this idea. And, um, you know, this is, this is what I'm going to do. No, this was something that was part of a plan. And it was part of God's plan as an introduction to the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry. So all the way back in the time of Isaiah, Isaiah was writing about this one who's going to be, you know, make his way straight. He's going to be saying these things. Uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's talking about John the Baptist was this guy who went out in the wilderness at the Jordan River and was starting to baptize people. This was all something that was part of God's plan. And it heralded the coming Christ in his incarnation in his earthly ministry here. And it was preparing the way. It was saying, you know, with the coming of Christ into this world, there was a real manifestation of the king in the kingdom of God. Uh, there are aspects of the kingdom of God that might have existed beforehand, but you have the coming king in, uh, incarnate in this world uh, manifest before people in a miracle-working and gospel-proclaiming ministry uh, in a very special way here. And, and uh, John the Baptist's ministry was very much to herald that coming Christ and to indicate that he was here. It says, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Now, if you go out into the commentaries of, this, of the wise and prudent, you will find many, many attempts made to try to explain away that John the Baptist wasn't nearly so weird as he seems by this testimony. You know, well, of course, there were some snacks that they ate back then and they called them locusts but he wasn't really eating bugs well that's that's not the case john the baptist was was an unusual person in his dress and in his diet and uh, that's kind of the point here and one of the things i get from this honestly uh, is that people who are in gospel ministry though they may not dress in this strange way or have the strange diet 
there's going to be some strange attributes to their lives. When, when held alongside people who are not in the ministry, you're going to find some habits and things that they do that you're going to say, well, I don't really know anybody who does that. And they may vary among God's people. Just the fact that they're as interested in studying the things of God is pretty unusual. In fact, when I run into someone, uh, and it's happened a few times, younger men particularly, and I get into a conversation with them and they start saying, well, I've been studying and I'm reading this. And, I, and then I realized that it says this over in Isaiah. And then I was running over here and reading something in Matthew. I start thinking, yeah, that's pretty weird because I've been there. I've been that weirdo before. And at the time, I had no idea what was going on in my life. I just thought I had some strange curiosity going on. But it always makes my ears prick up when I hear a young man who's enthusiastically studying the Word of God and is not doing so under compulsion. I'm talking about people who are doing this on their own, who are saying, yeah, instead of going to lunch with my buddies, I'm sitting over here reading the Bible by myself and taking some notes, and then I'm calling ministers and asking them, can you help me understand this? These are interesting observations that often attend a a gospel ministry. Um, And and these are people, when I see this, it's it's often, or the thing that makes, makes it notable to me is particularly that they're not in some sort of formal training for this. It's not as though there's a grade that's coming up in eight weeks, and if they don't study this, they're going to get a B instead of an A. There's something more fundamental and compelling and spiritual about what's going on in these people's lives. And that's unusual. It's unusual. Uh, as to whether it's as unusual as eating bugs, I don't know. But it's unusual, and I, I make note of um, these unusual attributes of John the Baptist. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. So this ministry of John the Baptist was starting to be uh, sounded around in the area, and it says, Then went out, out to him Jerusalem and all Judea. Well, I'll take a moment to point out, not everyone in Judea was baptized by John the Baptist, right? So if you're in the mindset of, well, all means all, everybody in Judea was baptized by John the Baptist, it doesn't mean that. It means that a great many people were hearing about this, and it was a very popular movement. It's a good example of how you've got to handle Scripture properly in uh, its context. And we're going to find out that, we're going to know that this is true, because some of those in Judea, uh, later in this text, were explicitly forbidden to partake of John's baptism, though they actually came out there to, to partake of it. <clears throat> and they were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So we see here in John's uh, baptism, there is a recognition for those who were being baptized. So if you know what? I'm looking at my life. I'm giving my life a solid, hard look here. And I can't say I'm somebody who's perfect. Not by a long stretch. In fact, what I see is that I am a sinner. And this baptism is, I'm confessing that before men. I'm someone who stands in need of cleansing, if you will. And that's kind of what's being depicted here. But they're confessing their sins as they go to the waters of baptism. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, 
Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. So here you got John the Baptist who's denying baptism to people. Who are coming out saying, we want to be part of this. We want to partake. I want to be baptized. But from his observation, were evidently not repentant people. These were people who were just saying, I want to be involved in the religious mumbo jumbo that's popular right now. This is the new thing. And I want to be there, have done that and gotten the t-shirt kind of thing. That's the approach that of insincerity that they were bringing to this. John was aware of it and he forbade them of being baptized. And he said, look, if you want to be baptized, you need to, you need to bring forth the fruit that you are a repentant person. You need to be living in such a way that makes it evident that this is a sincere profession of sin. He calls them vipers. I mean, uh, really some of the harshest language in the Bible uh, is reserved for religious practitioners. And that's, a, that's kind of a frightening observation, really. Uh, one that should get our attention. If we are professing religion in this world, we may open ourselves up to the idea that God might be very disturbed by something we're doing if we're misrepresenting the religion we claim to believe in this world. Um, so, calls them vipers. This is not exactly a, uh, uh, a statement that's going to win friends and influence people, but uh, I'm certain John the Baptist was telling the truth about it. Um, Verse 9, he says, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. What uh, John the Baptist is pointing out there was a, is a fundamental error that existed among the Jewish people at that time. They thought, I'm Abraham's son, so they think it's a family thing. I'm part of this family, part of Abraham's family. Therefore, I'm good, Right? We're the children of God. That's not how it works, right? The Word of God says it's not of blood, right? And Paul goes on to say that, you know, it's not just a matter of being an Israelite that makes you a spiritual Israelite. There's a national Israel and there's a spiritual Israel, and they're two separate things. But in this day, many people in Jerusalem were kind of involved in the wayward religion of the Jewish faith at that time, which had introduced all sorts of false ideas. And they tended to believe these things. Like, if you're a Jew, you're in. And all those Gentiles are going straight to hell. That's kind of, that, that was kind of a fundamental tenet of the way they thought about things. And John the Baptist is saying, no, that's not how it works. Don't think that just because you're a child of Abraham that that means you're a born-again child of God. And then he says, I say to you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And I've always, for many years, having read that passage, I, I thought, well, that's a, that's a really intriguing statement. You know, he's, he's making a comment about something God could miraculously do, raising up children from stones, were he of a mind to do it. But it was only later in years as I studied the stoniness of man's fallen state and the depravity with which we come into this world, that I realized this is exactly what God does do. He takes stones, stony-hearted, unregenerate Amen. haters of God, and raises them up as children of God. So this is not just some metaphor where John the Baptist is trying to put it back in their face in the context of a little uh, you know, dust-up here in front of a group of people. This is John the Baptist teaching something about the sovereign nature 
of God's people and uh, the mercy that's been shown to them. That we could be raised up as stones to be children unto, unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now this is talking about, he's talking about the coming Lord Jesus Christ here. And this is an example of where the Bible uses baptism in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it is in reference to water baptism. Other times it is in reference to trials that you're going to go through. There's a thing called baptism of the Holy Spirit that at times references things like the fulfillment of uh, Joel's prophecy in Joel 2, 28 through 32, which you see fulfilled in like the day of Pentecost and throughout the New Testament church era. So the term baptism is used in some different ways. They don't all depict uh, spiritual baptism. And in this thing where he's talking about baptized with fire and those sorts of things, it's really talking about the coming judgments that were going to be upon uh, the Jewish people, most likely fulfilled in 70 A.D. But... John the Baptist here is point is talking about this coming judgment. There's an axe laid to the root of the tree. This Jewish nation here that has stood, though it's been wayward time and time and time again, and has broken God's covenant over and over and over again, he's pointing out there is a time of judgment that's coming against these people. And uh, it's the axe is at the root of the tree. It's like it's just about the cutting is just about to start to, to happen here. And John is prophesying that. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now here's the baptism story. So you see John the Baptist was baptizing. There's a baptism of repentance going on there. And then it says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And this is one of the more interesting uh, little anecdotes in the Bible, in my opinion. (laughs) But John forbade him. Now, previously, John had said, I don't want these scribes and Pharisees over here to be uh, baptized. And his reason for forbidding them baptism or denying them baptism was evident insincerity in their profession. They had brought forth no fruit that indicated they were repentant of anything. They just wanted to be part of the religious show that was going on. So he had his reasons for not wanting to baptize them, and they were legitimate. Now John is kind of saying, I don't want, Je- I don't want to baptize Jesus. But it's a whole different set of reasons, is it not? It's not because he thought Jesus was insincere or anything like that. Quite the opposite. It's because he's thinking, who am I to baptize Jesus? Right? Now, this is the Jesus of him who said, you know, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John's sort of entering into the gravity of what's about to take place here. And I think it was probably pretty disorienting to him. I got to think he was standing there going, what is going on? What do I do here? I didn't come out here. To, I thought I was going to come out here today and baptize a bunch of repentant sinners like I've been doing. That's been what I've been doing. I know how to do that. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is here. And he's talking about me baptizing him. This is not what I expected to do today. Right? It's a very unusual situation. I I feel sympathy towards John the Baptist in this because I can only imagine uh, how I might have felt. I can tell you that as someone who has baptized people, I feel unworthy in baptizing another sinner such as myself. I mean, there's a... There's a real gravity about that that makes me think, 
Lord, why would you want me to do this? I mean, I'm just a terrible sinner. And I, and this is, but this is how it works, right? How much more so must John the Baptist have thought, well, here's the Lord of glory. Here's Jesus Christ. And now I'm supposed to baptize Him? I mean, it must have been just completely over the top how unworthy he felt for this matter. John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and thou comest to me. Wow. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So Jesus said, This is how it's supposed to be. It's to fulfill all righteousness. I submit to you, if Jesus Christ had not been baptized by John the Baptist right here, he could not have claimed, I am the Savior, because it was done to fulfill all righteousness, and had he not done that, he would have left some righteousness unfulfilled. So this was an absolute requirement. In God's uh, book of things, this is how this, God said this has to be done. Um, you know, there's a lot of people, uh, different Christian groups, who make the issue out of uh, salvation where they'll say, look, if you're not baptized, and usually it's if you're not baptized by us, you're going to go to hell. Because baptism is, a, is instrumental in imparting eternal life to you. It's a requirement laid upon man in order to get eternal life. We're going to look at a text here in a minute that is kind of why maybe that, that gets brought up in that way and why that's not correct. But I'll say this. That can't possibly be true just based on this statement alone. Because Jesus did this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, if Christ is your intercessor and your representative, and He's standing before God on your behalf, having fulfilled all righteousness, what could be laid to your charge? Could someone say, well, wait a minute now. This brother over here, he was never baptized. Jesus Christ was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, and He is our righteousness. Jehovah said, can you, the Lord, our righteousness. They're not looking at you. If you're one of God's children, Jesus Christ has got the baptism that you need to get into heaven because He fulfilled all righteousness on your behalf, not you. Now that's the truth. However, it does not teach, so therefore baptism is not important. It doesn't teach that at all. Baptism is still important. It just doesn't have the purpose of getting you into heaven. What Christ did gets you into heaven. Baptism helps you enter into proper discipleship and obedience to your Lord. We'll look at that here in just a minute. So he, he fulfilled all righteousness, then he suffered him. So John the Baptist went along with it. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. He's coming out of the water. You see that? There's not a cup of water being poured on him or some sprinkling going on. He's coming up out of the water. Right? And this is... Baptism by immersion is what's being pictured here. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, that was an amazing day and an amazing event. Um, 
an incredible example that the Lord set for us in the waters of baptism. So Jesus was baptized, and he did that as an example. By the way, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So that tells you there's something different about when Jesus was baptized by John. Jesus was baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. He had nothing to repent of. You follow what I'm saying? So this isn't he's not doing this because I gotta repent, just like all the rest of you. He's doing this to fulfill all righteousness and to set an example that was followed by the New Testament church. So that's an important thing to know. Now, this matter of salvation and baptism, we actually preached on this just a little while back. Because I've been in First Peter, now I'm in Second Peter, but I covered this a little while back, but we'll we'll hit it again quickly. First uh, Peter three twenty one, and you see this testimony. Uh, it's kind of this is a, a one of those places in the scriptures kind of hard to find a place to jump in. Uh, you'd have to go way back, or you just kind of get into it. And so I'm just going to kind of jump into it here. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few that is eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot in that that helps us define baptism. One of the things that's plainly stated here is that there is a salvation in baptism. Now, I stated before, it doesn't get you to heaven. But it saves you in manifold ways. First of all, the Lord has commanded and exemplified that we are to be baptized. And if you believe on Him, and you know that and you've been taught that, and you are standing in the state of, I am unbaptized, yet I know the Lord was baptized as an example, and I believe what He taught, you are in a state of conscience with respect to the matter. And as that goes on across time, you may begin to feel the weight of that and say, you know what, I I need to be baptized. I believe the Lord. He set an example. And you can persist in that state for a long time. I may mention at Ronnie's uh, funeral, he was a dry lander. I mean, we're talking about decades that that brother believed what we believe and never got baptized. And some people do that. But it puts you in a state there's some aspect of your conscience where you're thinking at times, I'm really not doing like I should. I know what I need to do, I'm just not doing it. If nothing else, baptism saves you from that state. It saves you from the persistent thought that I'm really disobeying my Lord. It saves you from the awkward situation where, uh, you know, I, I, know I've, I know people and I've known people who have been very zealous about, well, we believe this and that, and the primitive Baptists believe this and that. Well, uh, they also believe you should be baptized. So you can have that type of testimony about your theology and whatnot, but if you are unbaptized, you may be standing there before someone of another order, and you're having these conversations, and say, well, where were you baptized? <laughs> oh, I hadn't been baptized. You see how that tremendously undermines whatever... Uh, you know, things you might say about the old Baptists believe this and the old Baptists believe that. Um, the old Baptists believe, but they're old Baptists. Yeah. <laughs> you follow me? Don't lose sight of that. 
Baptism is part of it, right? So uh, if you're kind of out there claiming I'm an old Baptist or I'm a primitive Baptist and you haven't been baptized, uh, you don't have the first foggiest idea what we're even talking about here. You're just playing games with it. So uh, it will save you obeying the Lord, not just in baptism, but in every aspect of your life. If you have a conscience and a heart that you're doing something wrong and you know that's been spiritually laid upon you and you say, oh, I'm just going to keep doing it. You're in an unsaved state with respect to the conscience on that matter. It's going to trouble you and vex you and bother you and you may ignore it and you may put it off and you may do this, and, but you are unsaved with respect to that particular matter. And by obeying God, you can enter a state of salvation from that woeful state. That's certainly true of baptism. Again, none of that populates heaven, but it has a huge bearing on your discipleship and your walk in this life. There's also a profession here made uh, in the waters of baptism. Um, It says that baptism doth also now save us. So there's that type of temporal salvation that we're talking about that I just mentioned. And it kind of helps clarify that. It says, not the putting away the filth of the flesh. That could have two applications. First of all, it's not a bath. You're not doing this because you're dirty and you're going to put off the filth of your physical flesh. But it's also not an actual spiritual cleansing in the sense of baptism is now removing your sins. Jesus Christ removed your sins. Okay? And this putting away the filth of the flesh, the baptism is not doing that. But what is it doing? It's not those things, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. See the, how the conscience plays into the matter? You've got a good conscience now because you said, I saw Jesus did it. I saw that the, this is what we're supposed to do. He set an example. I believe on Him. And uh, I kind of have a bad conscience about it because I'm not doing it. Well, now you've obeyed the Lord, and now you can say, I have a good conscience about that. I did what my Lord told me to do, and I have joined with the saints of God. But this good conscience is not just a good feeling, right? The waters of baptism is not just, oh, I want to feel better around my family, and a lot of them are old Baptists, and they'll stop bugging me about it, or whatever, you know. It's not a family thing. It's not that sort of deal. It's not a blood thing, so to speak. It is an answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, as you're put in the waters of baptism and brought back up, there's a depiction of resurrection being made there. Once again, that only happens in baptism by immersion, which is why we do it that way. And it is saying, I believe in the risen Lord. This is not some, you know, dime store Jesus out there who said a few philosophical things that I thought were clever and now I'm going to check my religion box and and I can say I'm a Christian. This is making the statement that I believe Jesus Christ is no longer in the tomb. He came out of the tomb. He resurrected from the dead. And that's where our hope lies. This is why at at Brother Ronnie's funeral we're talking about our, our hope is in the resurrection. Um, and if we don't have a hope in the resurrection, we, we honestly don't have, have a faith at all. Because that's how important that truth is. So, uh, we see here that baptism is this form of a timely salvation that we enter into. 
by obeying God and that we do it by professing that Jesus Christ is risen. So that's incredibly important. Over in Acts chapter 8, we'll catch, catch one other place here. We've hit several points that uh, you know, we've already hit baptism is by immersion, but it's probably the strongest testimony of it here. This is the this, this story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, this is uh, in the same way that John the Baptist was told of God to do these things. Uh, now, Philip has the Lord speaking to him and telling him what to go do. You've got another element here that's very important. You've got to have a God-called minister performing the ordinance of baptism. It's not just willy-nilly whoever wants to. Uh, there are people going back through church history who were kind of out there, uh, you know, kind of isolated from other people, and they, they decided they'd become Christians, and they start baptizing each other. Um, and that's, a, that's an improper way to proceed. But what we see here is that you've got God-called ministers in a succession here that are do, the ones doing the baptizing. And he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia and eunuch, of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. <clears throat> this is really getting into the heart of what the purpose of gospel ministry is. There's many in the world who are going to say gospel ministry is intended to populate heaven. It is not. This man was a righteous man who was already going to, to Jerusalem to worship God, already had a sincere spiritual interest and was reading the Scriptures, did not understand everything he saw there, but he needed someone to come alongside and help him. This is the purpose of the Lord's New Testament church. That's why preachers exist. To come alongside people who have a sincere spiritual interest and who want to know these things and to help instruct them in the truth. Very, very important. The place of the Scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now, we read that. We've got New Testament eyes here. We read that and we say, that's talking about Jesus, right? I mean, it, if you've been around the church, you've read the Bible very much. You've had the benefits in the New Testament. You read that and Jesus pops off the page like just incredibly, you know. But here's a man who didn't have the benefit of having read the New Testament. He didn't know any of this. He's reading Isaiah. And Isaiah, if you don't know the New Testament, Isaiah is pretty cryptic. It's as cryptic as Revelation is to us today because we don't know exactly what all those things mean. However, you'll find lots of preachers telling you they know every jot and tittle of it and can explain it you know, to the nth degree. Isaiah is pretty, uh, it's pretty esoteric if you're reading it in the absence of the New Testament Scriptures. And this man didn't know the New Testament. The New Testament had not been written at this point. But Philip 
knew these things. He's been involved in ministry. He's a gospel preacher. And he could come alongside him and point out the thing that pops up evidently to us. He could say, well, he's going to say it. I'm just reading it. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or some other man? So you read that passage he just read, and it's like, well, who's he even talking about? That's, that's what he's doing. He's like, is this a prophecy? Is he talking about something that was happening in his life? Help me out here. Uh, it's an evident question that you would ask if you're reading that text without uh, the benefits of the New Testament. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. So Jesus, like a well-informed, well-educated New Testament Christian, was able to say, let me tell you how these things relate to Jesus Christ and how He fulfilled this prophecy. It was written some thousand years before. Um, 600,000 years. Um, So He began at the same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, it doesn't mention anywhere in there explicitly that um, Philip had taught him something about baptism, but it's evident that he did. Uh, There's nothing in the Isaiah text that's going to lead you to believe that water baptism by immersion for people who believe is something he should do. It's evident that in part of that preaching unto him Jesus was, you know, and those who believe on his name, they should be baptized. And that's the answer of a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those things had been imparted to him. And so he's thinking about this and they're riding along and all of a sudden there's some water over there and he's thinking, I need to get wet. I need to get in the waters of baptism. See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. There it is. Believer's baptism. It's not a baptism of infants. It's believer's baptism. By the way... That was embedded in the Peter passage as well. It said, it's the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you cannot take an infant, as adorable as they are, and say, can you tell me what your conscience is with respect to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? They have no conscience with respect to that matter. Since they cannot bring forth the answer of a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ... They are therefore not proper candidates for baptism, which are defined here. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. That's the proper candidate. It's someone who has a cognition of gospel truth. It's been explained to them, and they say, I believe that, and I want to follow the Lord in baptism. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into, into the water. Both Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. There's the model. It's into the water. A believer being baptized by a God-called man by immersion because they went into the water, right? These are the things we believe and continue to practice. 
both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and passed through, and passing through, he preached in all the cities and came to Caesarea. So we've hit a lot of the fundamental tenets of baptism there, there, and why we practice it. It was an example set by Jesus. Um, it is done for believers. It's a proclamation that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's where your hope is. It is by immersion. It's in the water. It's not done for infants. It's done for those who can profess and bring forth the answer of a good conscience. But baptism, as it relates to any individual, is something that is conditional. Now, your eternal salvation is unconditional. It is done by God. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. That's how Paul puts it. Utterly unconditional. Jesus Christ did everything that's required. But you're going to have to do something to get baptized. What Christ did for you on the cross is not going to levitate you out of your spot into the waters of baptism completely independent of your will in the matter. It's just not. You've got to do something to get baptized. This man here, it was set before him, and he said, he said I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm making a decision. There's a lot made of decisions in Christianity. Decisions to be saved. Well, we, I can agree on this point. You're going to have to make a decision to get baptized. Because it's not going to happen by accident. And God's not going to levitate you into the waters of baptism. You're going to have to hear the truth and you're going to have to say, I decide. You know, what's the song? I have decided to follow Jesus. There's a decision being made there. And, you know, there's people who end up in glory who are never baptized in this world. Um, it seems evident the thief on the cross was never baptized. None of the Old Testament saints were ever baptized in the New Testament church ordinance of baptism. So it's not a requirement of your eternal salvation, but it is, uh, it is a condition of becoming a proper disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's New Testament church. Baptism, therefore, is, a, is an example. It may be the best example of what we call conditional time salvation. We already said it's a salvation. You can be delivered from the bad conscience of saying, well, I'm not really obeying the Lord by not being baptized. You can have that deliverance by being baptized. That doesn't populate heaven, so it's only a timely salvation. It's a salvation in your conscience and experience. And it is conditioned upon your obedience. If you choose not to do it, you will stand outside the domain of the Lord's New Testament church. Um, it's conditional in that it requires your willing and active obedience in the matter. The results, therefore, depend on something you do. You have to submit to baptism. And we know this is true because baptism, from what I've said before, is not guaranteed of all God's sheep. You follow me? The eternal prize that Jesus Christ won, your eternal redemption, your perfection forever before the throne of grace, is the same for all of God's people. 
It's the same for every one of them. Every one of them is going to get it. They didn't do anything to deserve it. And that's how it's going to be. It's the same for all of them. But baptism is not the same for all of God's people. There are some who believe these things and they choose not to do it. They suffer with a bad conscience in that matter for all their days as they do it to some degree. Many, those in the Old Testament did not were never baptized. Thief on the cross was never baptized. Those people are in heaven. We know that. But they missed out on one aspect of the salvation that is available to you here. Let me ask you this. Jesus Christ said something about entering into the abundant life, right? It, is it not implicit in that that the amount of effort that you extend towards following Christ is going to equate to the abundance you experience in your spiritual life? That seems evident to me. Um, so, I'll just close with this. Isaiah chapter 2. And I think baptism takes this form in many respects, though this passage is not directly talking about baptism. There is a washing in view. And um, so there's some similarities there. But the conditionalism is certainly sim- similar here. And I think this equates to baptism. Isaiah chapter 2, or uh, actually Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 16. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Now that's an appeal to your will. Right? This is declared, it is an exhortation for you to enter into obedience. It is not saying God is going to force you to do this and He's going to levitate you into obedience without any function of your will whatsoever. This is appealing to your will, saying this is what you ought to do. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead the widow. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. That's talking about temporal blessings for living as you ought in this world. Now this is in the Old Testament, but it perfectly models the notion of baptism. Baptism is something you ought to do. If you be willing and obedient in the waters of baptism, you're going to eat the good of the land in the sense of you are going to be a member of the Lord's New Testament church. And you're going to have, among manifold other things, at a minimum you're going to have the blessings of communion set before you. And if you're not a member of the church, you don't know what that means. And I know those of you who are members of the church, you know it means a lot. So there's a blessing that you're going to experience in that if you're willing and obedient to the Lord in the waters of baptism. But look at verse 20. There's a flip side to this. I've often said if there is such a thing as conditional time salvation, then there must be such a thing as conditional time condemnation. Right? That's the thing from which you are being saved. Right? The flip side of that coin, if you will. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now in this context, it's talking about the people of Israel and what would happen to them as a nation in some political situation they're in here. But the metaphor still holds. For those who refuse the waters of baptism, though they actually believe these things, uh, they're going to have uh, they're going to have a bad conscience about the matter at a minimum, and they're going to 
never experience uh, the communion ceremony, they're going to miss out on some aspects of the fellowship of the saints as a result. Yeah. Well, that's about all I want to say on the matter today. Um, I'm delighted that Sister Laney wants to come forward and be baptized. But if there are any here today, I can say, like the Ethiopian eunuch, there's much water. If you only knew what all we went through to get much water in here. We, we, Brother Leon filled it up yesterday, came in this morning, and it was just about gone dry again. So uh, there's, we had to fill it up twice. Had a little bit of a leak somewhere going on. We're going to have to investigate that on the, on the baptistry. But there is much water here. What doth hinder you to be baptized? If you're here today and you'd like to make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'd like to enter the waters of baptism, bring forth the answer of a good conscience, say, I believe in the risen Lord. We offer that to you today. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.